The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Squawk Identity. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co-hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a U.S. legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 65 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 11th of December, 2020, from the Aviator Sound Studios from somewhere in Southern California. On today's show, I have the privilege in sitting down with my favorite podcast co-host from the podcast universe. Rob, Roger, and I wanted to spend this episode discussing recent events within our industry, our latest flying adventures or lack of flying adventures, and we wanted to share tribute to a legend in aviation that has recently taken his final flight west. Please join us as we tip our hats to Brigadier General Charles Elwood Yeager. Now that our pre-flight is complete, let's get ready to push off the gate. Start up those virtual podcast engines and get ready for takeoff. Squawk Ident, episode 65, is officially underway. Joining me at the controls is an exceptional aviator and co-host. He is a professional CFI, I, and MEI flight instructor, a former freight dog, a former airline pilot, a current King Air flight instructor, a Falcon 2000 commander, a captain, and a corporate operator as well. He joins us today from somewhere in San Diego, California, where he is hanging sheetrock and punching holes in the ceiling and floorboards. Please help me in welcoming back to the show, Captain Roger. Roger, how you doing? Oh, I'm, I'm doing all right. You know, a little less flying lately, a little more home construction, and I think I'm, I'm ready to, to go back to flying. Yeah? Absolutely. Yeah, you and I are in the same boat. I mean, I can't tell you how many projects uh, I've started, at least. <laughs> I know, and it, it amazes me what you're able to do, and I'm just kind of blindly, I'm blindly punching holes in the ceiling and floorboards and, you know, a- anywhere else that I might happen to swing a hammer accidentally. Yeah, you know, I believe there's a, a Tom Hanks film from the late 80s or 90s uh, that kind of reminds me every time you say you're starting a project. He was an architect. I got to remember the name of that movie. And uh, and they buy this beautiful Victorian home of some kind and they start. He's an architect and he's, you know, going to remodel the whole thing. And it just turns into a giant disaster of, of uh, construction and, and a lot of... Uh, slapstick comedy with tom hanks falling through some well, floorboards and <laughs> yeah, unfortunately i'm neither an architect nor do i have a victorian nor am i tom hanks so I, that's like the the perfect trifecta of of not so greatness probably but no i know, think it's quite the opposite i think uh i think with your logical and, and very uh, technical mind you know you've showed me some of the photos of the projects you've gotten started and 
you know, hey, they look great. And, you know, you and I kind of confer on on what's going on and what's the best way of going about doing this. You know, the only reason I kind of know what I'm doing is I would say a DIYer, uh, nothing more, nothing less, uh, is simply because I grew up, you know, holding the flashlight for my dad, who we remodeled awesome. the house, I don't know how many times, or, you know, roofing, plumbing, electrical, laying concrete, you know, digging trenches, chopping down eucalyptus trees, going up there with climbing gear. And, and I mean, I was always by his side growing up and, and that maybe really planted the seed for my interest in every home building TV show ever made from, you know, this old house to, to, uh, I think there was a home time, I think it was called, uh, which was a really, I think where they got the idea for the TV show tool time, uh, later on. And so I, I came home from school and instead of doing homework, I was watching on how to install a insulation in a, in a house in New Hampshire, you know, <laughs> why? I don't know. It just sparked my interest. So, uh, that's where my kind of, uh, interest in it came. And then I realized what Roger and Rob both have approached me on many times in the past year is the cost of doing repairs as a homeowner is astronomical. If you're going to hire somebody else out to do the work, we're talking like almost 200 bucks an hour for their labor. And you think a project might take a week, you might as well buy a new car. I mean, it's, it's crazy how expensive things are. And I'm not saying it's not worth it, to hire someone to do a job. It just know that it is going there to be. There's some stickers shock involved with it. Extreme. Yes. You know? and so it my is, hat's off to it you It is both. the cost of the car. I mean, to be honest, it's, it's, they're pretty high for, for home improvement projects now. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, we have a, I was, we're, before the show and the pre-show, we were kind of talking a little bit about what, you know, what's been going on. And, you know, my neighbor across the street is a, a roofer and he was telling us that, his margins have shrunk significantly simply because the cost of plywood in the United States has increased so much. And, and I'm like, well, why? Why, why did wood or plywood uh, suddenly get so expensive? And he said, well, you know, it's, it's doubled in, in cost and his contractor cost, you know, we're talking here. And it's because that we had so much with the lockdown and the rioting and all this demand has gone up with plywood. Uh, and, and wood materials uh, in general, that it's really cut into his margins and, and he's having a hard time being able to charge a competitive price and still pay all of his employees, you know, their wage and still bring home a margin of profit. So, yeah, it, 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 I could see how construction costs and contractor costs have gone up significantly in the past few months. Yeah. Well, also joining us today on uh, another superb episode of Squawk Ident is another aviator, a Squawk Ident co-host, and a former international professional racquetball champion, a member of the 9G Club, an AMP, an avionics tech, an RC aircraft commander, a boat skipper, a commercial drone operator, currently a 737 pilot for Legacy Airlines. The name we use here on the show is an alias to our employer, a U.S. mainline carrier. From his fortress of isolation where the family's new teenage driver has decided to park her new car on the front lawn. From somewhere in Flower Mound, Texas, help me in welcoming back to the show, Mr. Rob D. Rob, how you doing? 
I'm doing well. How you guys doing? So uh, thanks for getting up really early to join me, to join me and uh, actually everybody else this morning for an early morning podcast. Got to get it out of the way before uh, some visitors come into town this afternoon. It's that time of the year, isn't it? Yeah, it sure is. Yep. I have my, my daughters have a volleyball tournament this weekend and uh, my parents decided last minute to come into town and, and watch uh, the game because they, they can't stand uh, all the uh, lockdowns they're going through up there in the Northeast. So I was going to say, you know, that, that kind of activity is illegal out here in California. <laughs> exactly. Six feet, so. six feet apart. Get, get away from each other. <laughs> six feet. Six yeah. feet. Until you're on the court, then you can touch every the same uh, volleyball and give everybody high fives and it's you know it's yes. so the logic is is mind blowing. Now, I'm I make it a very strong point not to get political on the show, and and yeah. we won't we won't get political on the show because that's not what this this podcast is about. But I gotta say one thing. Please explain this to me. How going to Target, Walmart, Costco, Marshalls, JCPenney, Macy's. How is that essential enough to where you can cram hundreds, if not thousands of people in an aisle and you're supposed to maintain six feet apart, but anybody that walks into a Target right now knows that, you know, you do your best. Everyone looks at each other through their mask. It's like, you're too close. Get away. You're in my personal six feet. But regardless, you're still crammed in this in line just to get in the building. Okay. And that's okay. But we can't go and eat in a parking lot outside where it's 72 degrees in California right now. And you can't do that because that's dangerous. You know, I mean, it's all about mind control. That's the way I feel. It's all about mind control. It's a movement socialist and you know just this you know fear mongering and what are you talking about socialist i'm a social guy i like talking to you guys what what What? (laughs) (laughs) well you know i i just gotta say you know cheers for your parents to come down uh i actually had my father uh visit us yesterday and you know we went out and we didn't go to a restaurant because they're all shut down we we just had a nice day together we ordered some uh some really good chicken from a place down the street, um, Gallo Grillo or Gallo, something like that. Um, and it's all over Southern California. It's this chain of really good, authentic Mexican food. And we got tortas and tacos and, nice. you know, and so it sounds like the restaurants are open for takeout, carry out for takeout. Like yeah. Yes. Okay. So you can go and, you know, everything's roped off and they've got all the sure. chairs are upside down and, yeah. you know, but That'll you can help. go in, you can order yep. your food, step to the side, uh, or they make you wait outside. Uh, and then they'll, they'll either text you, which I'm really loving this, where you go into a restaurant or uh, a food establishment and you, you either put your name down before the lockdown, you'd put your name down for a, a table. And because of the reduced capacity, you can't wait in the lobby. So they take your phone number, you would leave, you'd go out and hang out outside on the, on the sidewalk or around the building or in the parking lot or in your car. And then they text you when your table was ready. Of course, your outdoor table. Um, Now that the lockdown is good, you go in, you place your order and pay for it. And then they get your phone number and then you go, they tell you, okay, go wait in your car. And then when your order is ready, they text you and they 
you know, have all the food ready for you at a table aside. So you're not in the same vicinity of where you were ordering and you pick up your food and you go. And it's really a nice way to expedite your experience, get in and out of there as quickly as possible and not loiter. Yeah. Um, so I, my hat's off to the, to the process. And I think the technology that yeah, they're doing restaurants the best they are using. Can. Yeah. yeah, they're doing the best they can. And that's certainly a, a good way to, you know, keep moving forward. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah a lot so of good. places and, over here are doing that too. Yeah. And that's the way we have to kind of work until this now, I guess the news last night was the uh, FDA has approved the uh, use of the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, the question is, and I don't know if either one of you have seen any of this information, but there was a, a kind of a blurb on one of our um, union's news blasts that be careful as a, as a professional aviator before taking the vaccine, consult with your FAA medical examiner because we still don't know the total effects of a vaccine. and there could be potential side effects that may put your FA medical at risk. Yep. And, and so the company right now hasn't uh, released any kind of official statement on the vaccine because it is not yet available to us. But prior to that, there's a task force right now with our union that they are investigating the effects of the vaccine, which vaccine we may or may not be allowed to, to take. Right. Um, so until we know with uh, some level of certainty that the FAA has approved a particular vaccine, it's not just the FDA, but now as a pilot, we yeah. have to ensure that the FAA, uh, yeah. the, the medical surgeon, uh, has approved a particular vaccine. Right. And, and, and probably just to uh, reiterate to our, our listeners and you know, potential viewers on YouTube, this pertains to all aviators. It's not just, uh, you know, 121 airline pilots. I mean, it's, it's, if you have a class three, a class two, class one medical certificate, um, this could potentially affect you too. So if you're thinking about getting the vaccine, like aviator Tony said, make sure you check with your medical examiner because um, you're basically um, restricted from using prohibited or restrictive medic medications or um, anything that you put in your body uh, before you operate an aircraft. So if the vaccine hasn't been approved by the, uh, by the uh, AME medical examiners or the, you know, FAA medical, um, then you'll potentially be, can be operating an aircraft illegally. And mm-hmm. worst case, if something happens and you had the vaccine inside of you when there was a mishap or an accident or you, you know, kill somebody, uh, that can really, really cause problems, not only for you legally, if you're still alive to do it, but also for, you know, the, all the, you know, it could just open up a big, uh, case of, uh, can of worms with, yeah. um, could it be a problem with the vaccine? Could it be a problem with, you know, yeah, just a whole bunch of things. So. Yeah. And we don't want to say don't take a vaccine. Obviously, I'll be in line. I right. have no problems if, you know, by the time it becomes available to someone like myself, I'm sure that millions of people will have already taken it and we will at least know a lot more about the potential side effects and whatnot. Um, but what we're saying is 
don't rush to be the first one out there to get it. And maybe one, maybe the Pfizer one is not approved for the FAA, but the Moderna one is. We don't know this yet. So until we have from the uh, flight surgeon uh, absolute exactly. which vaccine is approved for an FAA medical, uh, make sure you, you make sure you dot your I's, cross your T's, and know exactly which one is going to be approved. Yeah. And by the way, there is a list on the uh, FAA website in the medical uh, section of the website of approved and um, um, restricted or prohibited uh, medications and stuff. So if you're taking anything, and I even I even had a, like a eye infection a couple years ago, and the doctor prescribed a steroid eye drop for me to uh, to help it out, and come to find out that that was on the prohibited list. So oh. I had to go back to the uh, to my optometrist of all things. You know, who would think? I guess <laughs> vision is something, but <laughs> but I had to go back to my optometrist and say, hey, is there an alternative that? Um, that we could find that's not on this list of prohibited or, or um, you know, prohibited medications that I can take right. so I can continue to operate my uh, yeah. aircraft. So, yeah. And it's not always uh, prescriptions. It, the over-the-counter medications can be yes, prohibited as right. well. I know a lot of pilots deal with sinuses. I, I'm yeah. uh, one of those persons that get seasonal right. allergies and allergies in general. Like I think and, like Claritin. Claritin's like, I don't yeah. think that's, but Allegra, Allegra D or Allegra, one of the Allegras are. Yeah, are, and the histamine in general is prohibited right. because it makes you drowsy and you can't operate heavy equipment uh, with that, uh, aka your first class medical, your second or third class medical. These items um, could potentially put you out or ground you for a period of time. Now, if you are home for a week or two and you got a really bad allergy flare up, sure, you can take some of these medications. Just they have to be out of your system before you are, you're behind the controls of an aircraft. So do the homework, uh, especially for a new pilot. I didn't know this getting into it, and, and I've learned a little bit over the years about where I should go look before I take anything. Um, and I've learned you know, what medications I can buy over the counter that are not going to be a problem. Uh, and, and I kind of stick to those. Uh, it, it doesn't limit you completely, but know that there are limitations and you should look yeah. at those. Yeah. Roger, how do we go down this wormhole? I, I don't know how we went off that tangent there. <laughs> you guys did, quote, did kind of uh, veer off there a little bit. Well, well you know, the, you got to expand on this information. Yeah. of Captain Tony and Captain Rob D, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and uh, we, do, we are not a <laughs> medical professional in any way, shape, or form, so please consult yeah. your FAA medical yeah, exactly. examiner. Uh, well, you know, let's, let's move on and just say thank you very, very much to Kareem. From episode 64, uh, Tenacious K. Uh, we had a wonderful time speaking to him at such a young age. He has accomplished more than, than most in a lifetime. He's, he is a go-getter, a New Yorker with real grit. And we had a wonderful time having a discussion about his journey in aviation, about his flight school, and uh, really impressed with the the flight school and the campuses that they have at multiple airports in the New York uh, tri-state area. And his uh, YouTube presence and uh, Instagram presence is huge. Uh, he's got a lot of followers. And, you know, just uh, talk about an entrepreneur. It was an yeah. honor 
to have yeah. Kareem on. He's such a bright young man. He's got a great future ahead of him, and uh, I wish him the very best. I think uh, he's going to do very well. Yeah, and uh, we just posted a few videos from the previous show on YouTube, which is what I try to do with uh, every show that we can is put up a video or two on YouTube. It kind of is interesting to see, uh, put a face to the to the voice and kind of see what we're trying to get done here and trying to get accomplished with uh, the journey of today's aviator, the struggles and the challenges in today's marketplace and, and discuss it all. So check it us, check us out on YouTube at uh, Squawk Ident Podcast. We also had a very exciting week this week. Uh, you know, my, my wife was saying, hey, you got three podcasts in a week? That's a bit much. Well, the other one wasn't a podcast. And he like, you had three podcasts in a week? Uh, well, the truth is we were invited. Rob and uh, Roger and I were invited by a really wonderful student from Eastern Michigan University, Olivia Tomlinson. She reached out to us, put it all together. She's the vice president of the Willow Run Riveters, which is their chapter of Women in Aviation Organization. And in association with Alpha, Eta, Rho, Sigma, Chi, I think that's the way you say it, right? Uh, she invited us to speak to a group of students in the EMU's Aviation Studies Department. Uh, we had a great time speaking with them about our journeys and the challenges associated with navigating this profession. We were honored to have been asked to participate in the event, and we look forward to any future engagements with flight schools around the country. Uh, it was a really cool experience to talk to these young aviators, a lot of women uh, in the group, and they were asking us questions that we hear on the show like to talk about um but they asked us a few questions that we don't really yeah, talk really about good. we didn't think of so i had a great time what did you guys think i thought i thought it was awesome man i love that kind of stuff uh fielding questions from um from eager young aviators like that because uh, you know we were in those shoes once and you know whenever uh, an experienced aviator walked into the room you know the, the first thing you mostly wanted to know is just tell me stories tell me some experiences and um it's really neat to uh be able to give back you know that sort of thing back to uh you know people who are getting into the industry and 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 really uh have a bright future ahead of them too you know yeah it's another great experience and another another um young aviator with a great future in front of her and the you know olivia and her ability and willingness to go out and um, volunteer in all these capacities and all this stuff that she's doing both on and off the airport was, is great to see. In addition to, to everybody else that was part of that podcast. And hopefully, you know, most important thing to me, just like Rob was just saying was being able to hopefully give something back to them and help them answer any questions that they might have so that it was a beneficial event for, for everybody that was involved. And um, I agree with Rob again. It was a, it was a great experience and I was happy to be there. Yeah. I was super excited because this really was our first event where we were asked to be guest speakers to, to an organization. Um, and it kind of got me thinking maybe the three of us should put together a presentation where if we get invited back to do something like this, that we can have a prepared, uh, speech or prepared examples of yeah. some of the hot topics and, and the most popular questions and then field questions at the end uh, from the students and or, you know, aspiring Definitely. professional pilots. Yeah. So big hats off and thank you again 
to Olivia for putting that together and reaching out to us. We had a wonderful time. Thank you. Now's the part of the show where we talk about from the flight line. Well, guys, we, we've been going back and forth and talking about the flying or lack thereof. And I just have a hard time wrapping my head around the fact that I'm what they call a zero timeline guy at uh, Legacy Airlines, which means I am not allowed to bid for a schedule for six months. It was part of the... Um, program or the TA that the union was able to uh, knock out with the company to help prevent or minimize furloughs. Now, the company did furlough quite a few pilots. I believe the latest number was more than 1,200 pilots that are out on furlough, uh, meaning, well, what's furlough? Some, some of our listeners might go, what, what is that? You know, um, If you're going to get into this aviation industry, you got to understand that the Aviation industry in general is very cyclical, and it is usually a direct indicator of how the economy or the marketplace in the, around the world really is how healthy it is. And so when there's a downturn, the fastest way a professional aviator company, not just an airline, but commercial operators as well, the easiest way to cut costs when demand is low is to minimize payroll. And part of that is pilots, flight attendants, mechanics, and, and not just that, but every aspect of the of the field. So furloughing is something that we try to minimize, but it does happen. And it tends to be kind of around 10-year cycles, wouldn't you say, Rob? It's like a 10-year, every 10 years is like a, some kind of economic event where yeah. There's a downturn. Something happens 10 years that just, you know, shakes the whole industry. It could be um, stock markets. It could be terrorism. As you can tell right now, it's a pandemic. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it seems every 10 years there's some kind of a um, downturn in the industry that forces um, cutbacks or layoffs furloughs. It's just, uh, yeah. And so this is, this is where we, we said now, Rob was fortunate enough to get hired a little bit before me, uh, at legacy through, through that agreement. And so he was not affected in the same way I was affected. Roger as a, a part 91 or a private operator. Uh, he fortunately has been, uh, able to keep flying, keep his position. And, you know, so these guys are in good shape right now. Uh, I am very lucky, I think, to not have been furloughed. I was hired just by happenstance. I was hired at a time where I didn't make that, uh, that furlough cutoff. I was actually above it. But I was forced into a conditional zero timeline, meaning I cannot bid for a schedule. I do not have a monthly guarantee. And the only flying I can achieve is whatever I get to pick up either through other pilots that are like, Hey, I don't want to fly this trip. Uh, instead of dropping it, I'm going to trip trade with you. Do you want the trip? And there are different forums that, that we're currently using, uh, between social media and, uh, apps that the company uh, sponsors and apps that the company doesn't sponsor. And so there are d multiple ways and I am on all of it. I made it a point to learn how to manipulate uh, whatever I needed to do so that if the opportunity comes up, 
I can pick up a trip here and there. And I've been very fortunate. I, I was kind of worried about it at the beginning of the month because I only had like uh, two trips. One was on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and the other was New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. Obviously, people don't want to fly on those. They want to be with their family. And I was able to pick up flying from other pilots. But I was also awarded flying recently uh, for like day trips here and there from the company's uh, scheduling department. Um, I used an app that the company sponsors that says, hey, if you put in your criteria and there's an opportunity for a trip based on your seniority, we'll, we'll award it to you. And I was awarded that. So not quite uh, what I'm used to in terms of flying, about half the flying that I usually do, but still able to fly. Uh, but Rob has not flown since uh, our last podcast. of February, yeah. Since, well, so what That's has that been February. like? 20th of November. <laughs> I say February. That was a long time ago. Uh, 20th of November. Um, November, yeah. Yeah. I, um, yeah, so we, we went from November to December, and my schedule didn't have any flying until the 18th of December. So I've um, virtually just been, you know, have a unscheduled vacation <laughs> without pay because uh, I'm not flying um, up until the 18th of December, which, uh, to be honest with you, I'm kind of enjoying it. Um, I don't have very many hours this month to begin with. I think I, I had the the minimum value. I think I had like 70 or 72 hours to begin with. I had a, uh, what they call a hybrid line, which is a mm. combination of reserve and um, uh, scheduled flying. So, um, I, but I only had two days of obligation for reserve and because there, there isn't that much flying out there to be had, those few days came and gone. So actually I, I was technically on duty a couple of days ago, but um, I didn't get called out to fly. So um, yeah, I've, I've been quite lucky. I did. I was able to drop a four day trip to a zero time line pilot um, over here in the Dallas area. So um, he was, uh, he was so thankful and I'm, glad I was able to do that because he had zero hours and he was just now starting to figure out how to do all that stuff. And it was my first time actually dropping a trip to another pilot too. So felt good to be able to do that. And, um, I think he, uh, he got like 20, 24 hour, three day or 23 hour, I'm sorry, 24 hour, four day, or is a 23 hour, four day trip, um, that begins, uh, on the 23rd. So, um, uh, I've got my bid in for next month. We'll see what we have. It's kind of, you know, this whole thing has affected me um, negatively and, and not like these furloughs or zero timeline guys. I mean, those guys have it really bad, but for me, I was, like you said, I was lucky to make the cut and not get furloughed. Um, however, you know, I suffered um, in my own, you know, pity way uh, with seniority, you know, my, I went from bidding about 50% in base down to 98%. So my quality of life, um, although it's all relative, right? Uh, I, I'm getting a lot of time off as it is, but I don't get the schedule that I want. I, I need, I like to fly in around 85 hours. Um, and, you know, there's just not enough in the schedule for me to have that. So I'm stuck with what I have. And 70 hours is not bad either. I can survive on that. And as, like I said, I was able to drop 
20 hours off, 23 hours off to another pilot. So I'm, I'm okay. I, I can do it. Um, but you know, I like to be up in the mid to high mid mid eighties. If I get up into yeah. the nineties, that's great, but I'm taking it, um, you know, and taking it, the what's in stride, you know, they say, if, you know, God gives you lemons, make lemonade. <laughs> so, yeah. well, so my hat's I, I off I'm, to you yeah. for, uh, for dropping, a uh, one of your trips, because when oh, you drop yeah. a trip as a line holder, um, yep. when you drop a trip to a zero timeline pilot, you forfeit that pay. Exactly. So, you know, you gave 24 hours of pay yeah. to a pilot that had zero hours of pay. Yeah, potentially and, thousands know, of dollars I just gave the guy. Yeah. And, and you know, thank you so much. On behalf of the zero timeline pilots at Legacy Airlines, I thank you, sir. <laughs> you know, that just is a testament yeah. to your generosity gotta, and, and to all the pilots. Take care that of everybody. Have, gotta take care of each other. That's what a union should be doing. And unfortunately, ours isn't doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, that that goes into a we could go into a a, a ten hour episode. <laughs> and Roger's like, you guys complain about what? You know it. You know. And speaking of Roger, what uh, you have not been flying either. You've been getting some uh, pantries built and sheetrocked, and uh, you know what's going on. Yeah, I've had uh, about about the last two weeks off, I guess, which is kind of a welcome change because I've been working. Um, three months straight I was working all the time and it, I think it's kind of just the lull um after Thanksgiving the the week of Thanksgiving or the week and a half around Thanksgiving uh, I worked a fair amount I was down in Cabo and that whole post Thanksgiving weekend um doing multiple international trips with all the the rigmarole that goes along with customs on both sides of the border um, which I think actually, all things considered, went about as well as you could expect it on one of the busiest travel days of the year. Um, I can tell you firsthand that um, private private jet operators were out in full force. I'll just kind of put it that way, because the ramps were crammed full of planes everywhere, private jets everywhere. So the FBO was uh, hard to find parking. It was the FBO. Uh, Oh, there was no parking at the FBO. There, it was you're pushed into overflow parking on the other wow. side of the airport, um, and definitely, definitely some delays. Like I say, I'm I'm fortunate to 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 be able to say that it went about as well as you could have expected it, but that bar was pretty low, also, um, just because it was a madhouse. Yeah, um, and especially when you know down in Mexico where things kind of run at a little bit of a different pace. But we got we got in and got out twice in one day, actually. So um, so that all went that went pretty well. And, and yeah, for about two weeks now, ever since that Sunday after Thanksgiving, I actually haven't had to do anything. There have been a couple trips. However, I was not um, I was not actually responsible for them. So oh, nice. And you've been getting like we mentioned a little bit of construction done on your on your chateau there That's in right. San Diego. Yeah. We've been, uh, I'm, you know, some construction, lots of destruction. So, uh, you know, hopefully we'll find our way back here. <laughs> yeah. Maybe before, before Christmas comes. Well, you know, you want to be able to finish those projects before uh, you have to go back to a full schedule really again. I'm really good at starting things. It's the finishing <laughs> that it sometimes leaves a little to be desired. Yep. For, uh, on behalf of uh, wives everywhere around the world. Uh, yep. 
<laughs> yeah. And it's, you know, unfortunately, it's so discouraging, too, because, you, you know, when you do projects like this, you always end up making you make a bigger mess to begin with. It, it just it's always like that. And so then you're left with a house of a construction zone. And in my case, because of the sheetrock and drywall, there's drywall dust everywhere. And it's um, so there's construction going on. There's, you know, sheetrock, drywall, um, you know, plywood yeah. lying around. And, and I only live in a condo. And so it's just a, it's, I don't even have a garage. So everything's just kind of piled up on the patio. There's drywall oh. dust coating everywhere in the in the yeah. kitchen and in the house and in the bathroom. And, you know, it's, it's just a See, I'm not allowed to do that because I that's the way I used to operate. I'm like, hey, well, we're doing construction. What do you expect? Now it's like, no, at, at the end of your construction, you know, if we say you're going to be done at seven at six o'clock, you're done because, because that last hour and, and every particle of dust that you created better be picked up. <laughs> so I, I, you know, what I do, I have buckets you know, and unfortunately it does take time away from the time allotted, but I'm kind of glad that this is the new way I'm doing things in the past, probably five, six years, because I have buckets of where I just put all my tools in a bucket. That way it's, I don't have to go and dig them out and put them back and all that stuff. And that bucket, you know, goes back into the shed and I have to vacuum and dust and all that stuff and take down all the plastic tarps because everything has to be tarped. Um, and then the shop back comes out and I vacuum everything up. And then the next day or whenever I get a chance to get back to that project, all I got to do is bring out the tarps and bring out the buckets of tools. And now yeah, I can get back to it without, you know, having to spend all this time collecting everything and uh and and the tools sometimes uh, you know a day or two of a project and I, they go back uh they get cleaned and put back um other times i start the project like my garage door the the trim around the garage door was rotten it's 40 years old so i removed it all replaced it all with some new redwood two by fours and trim pieces and had to primer it and paint it I got started on painting the garage door. I had to repair the garage door because the pan the top panel of the garage door, this uh, you know panel door, uh, the the metal started to come undone, and it, so it was a big deal. So I had to drill out some rivets and repair it, and put in. I put some wood support beams on each side so that it's a little bit more sturdy. So it was a, kind of a big project, and yesterday or day before yesterday. It's like, okay, it's getting late, time to clean up. I'm like, but I only have like one panel of paint left on the door. Yeah, but it's time to clean up. Okay. So <laughs> you look at my, you drive by my house, I've got three white panels and one like off-white panel <laughs> on my garage door. And it'll probably be that way for a few days because we've had other things going on. Um, and so hopefully I can get back to it before I got to go fly again. <laughs> Otherwise there'd be paint buckets and stuff sitting all over the garage and then flying like, all over. I got to bring my car in. I don't want to leave my car out. You better get it cleaned up. <laughs> <laughs> but so, yeah that's funny i i, I um uh, as you all know from previous podcasts and stuff i just went through a little house renovation project myself it lasted quite a bit quite a long time a little over a month just because they did it in uh in phases um but the uh like you guys were saying the the amount of dust that accumulates is just unbelievable it's unreal isn't it Unbelievable. If you have have allergies like me, look out next day, migraine. uh, Yeah, I just feel like crap. So so here's kind of the 
funny story tied into aviation, I guess. Uh, I, as you all know, I fly RC airplanes. Well, I haven't flown my models in quite a long time because I've been just distracted with other things with, you know, the kids with volleyball and I bought a boat and all that stuff. And um, so anyway, uh, the other day it was a, it was a beautiful day here in Texas. The winds were really calm and temperatures was temperature was forecasted to be in the seventies. So I said, Hey, let's go out and fly some model airplanes. Perfect day to do that. So I went into my garage and uh, my, my models hang from the ceiling and I pulled down a model and it had literally an eighth of an inch of dust, sawdust and just junk that's been floating around in the atmosphere. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, I wonder if this, this is like, you know, frost or snow on a wing, you know, let's see if this plane will fly. <laughs> let's see. Uh, let's see if it has enough drag. So I, I just took one airplane and I luck, you know, it's loose. So it just blew right off it. But man, I, I mean, it was literally, you know, an eighth of an inch of dust, man. It was crazy. Did you get so, that uh, new de-dusting card from the FAA? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> yeah I had to get the whole, you know, your aircraft is clean. You get type one dust removal. Type one and four started four <laughs> minutes ago. <laughs> and you know what? That's a great idea for a future podcast. Uh, you know, this year I have not yet had to de-ice, although yeah. I did have a... Man, I haven't even had a chance to wear my my Christmas epaulets or anything like that. Nothing. Uh, oh, really? Nothing. Yeah. <laughs> I got to wear my Christmas tie, even though it's not officially uh, approved anymore. <laughs> What's wrong with the legacy airlines, man? I don't think they. It's not. It's not. It's no longer in the handbook. I even yeah. looked because I, I have my candy cane striped tie that I wear. But uh, what's a tie? Like, oh, you don't Jesus. wear ties. Tie, <laughs> he wears a polo shirt. Tie. I mean, never mind. <laughs> and shorts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have, I have flown, I have flown in shorts and flip flops. <laughs> And flip flops. I don't know. Or if not, that... I I flew a I that was in the seven X in the Falcon Seven X. I flew a Falcon Seven X from Miami in shorts and flip flops. It was not Man. supposed to happen. However, when when a client shows up an hour and a half early and you haven't changed clothes yet, we put a priority in getting them out of there. I literally flew in shorts, t shirt, and flip flops. Until we got up, and then I went into the galley. <laughs> I changed. That I changed. is awesome. But I kid so you cool. not, Falcon 7X shorts, T-shirt, and flip-flops to complete the ensemble. Ladies and gentlemen, we do not recommend flying in flip-flops or I do, traveling I do on an airplane I do not recommend flying in flip-flops. <laughs> However, it can be done. It can be done. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, you know, I, I have been flying, gentlemen. Uh, and, and like I said, how is this? I'm the zero time guy and I, the one am fl- that it's been flying. It's kind of crazy, but, uh, we talked a little bit or spoke a little bit about uh, the flying that I had accomplished. Uh, I think an episode or two ago, I did some flying over the Thanksgiving holiday, Myrtle beach Thanksgiving. It was a wonderful experience. We did 30 hours there. I think I, we have talked about that a little bit, but what I did want to mention is there was a situation coming out on the very last leg of that sequence. Now we all know about the go home leg. Okay, the go home leg is if you're flying four days and you have two legs per day, anything that can go wrong will go wrong, but not until the very last leg of the sequence, which is the go home leg. It's Murphy's Law. That's just the way it works. When you're doing the pre-flight briefing, the captain will look at you and go, any potential threats? Yeah, it's the go home leg. 
enough said. And usually that gets a, a laugh and, and you're like, yeah, yeah, you're right. So we spend a little extra time and effort in making sure that everything is copacetic. And we, again, dotted our I's and crossed our T's and ready to go. Well, what happened was we were ready to go. The, it was the airplane had come in. They did a, a cleaning of the aircraft, a sanitation of the aircraft. And then as soon as that was complete, you know, we got, were able to get on the airplane. We did our pre-flight. The flight attendants did their, their pre-flight security checks, and we started boarding the aircraft. We were already a little bit behind schedule because the inbound flight was a little bit delayed. So instead of having the normal amount of time allotted between turns, it was a little tight. And... So we didn't really feel rushed, but it was a little bit less time, downtime than we were used to. And as soon as the flight attendant said, all right, all secure, ready to close the door. And Kevin's like, sure. So we closed the cabin door of the aircraft and the flight attendants did their final walkthrough. This is where they walk up and down the cabin to make sure that all cell phones are off. The seatbelts are all fastened. All the carry-on items are stowed either under the seat in front of them or in an overhead bin. We make, they make sure that all the overhead bins are closed. Once that's complete, they come up to the cockpit, the purser does, and says, okay, we're all secure. And the captain gives a thumbs up, they secure the cockpit door, and we are underway. Well, as soon as that happened on that go-home leg, uh, the ramp that I called, we had a ramp frequency uh, in DFW. It was a DFW to LA flight. And I called him up and I said, legacy one, two, three, we're ready for pushback off of gate, whatever it was. And the ramp said, uh, hold your push legacy. Uh, we have a cabin cleaner that left their keys in the first overhead bin in first class. And the captain goes, oh, okay. Um, I'll have the flight attendant take a look, and if we find them, we'll pass them through the window or something. So the person went and looked and came back like a minute later uh, and said, no, uh, we checked. We, we looked in both overhead bins on both sides, and the, the, the first one, as indicated, and, and we didn't see anything. There's nothing there. And so the captain relayed that to the ramp. And now the MOD, the manager on duty, gets on the same frequency and says, uh, yeah, Captain, uh, you know, this is the cleaner's house keys and car keys and she's really upset uh is there any way we can hook up the jet bridge and and you know, look for them and we look over on the jet bridge which has already been removed from the aircraft about 10 feet away and she's standing there on the jet bridge on the phone and the captain's like you know what i'll, I'll go look okay if it if it makes her feel i'll go look so the captain gets up goes to the back, removes all the suitcases, has the passengers in the first row of the cabin look in the seat back pockets, look in between the seats, make sure that our keys didn't get, you know, lost somewhere there. And he comes back a minute later and says, look, you know, we, we checked everything. I checked personally. The keys are not on board this aircraft, at least not in the location where she's indicating. And he's like, well, Captain, uh, let's hook up the jet bridge. He goes, you know, wait a minute. And now he's getting upset. And I, completely understand why he says we are so uh just hammered out on on time departure on time departure we will leave people behind if they're late to the gate if they're not at the gate 15 or 10 minutes prior to departure or 30 minutes prior to departure if it's an international flight we will shut the door and not let them on the plane and they'll miss their flight so that we can get an on-time departure because that's the way it's written 
and yet here we are over a pair of keys. We're gonna we're gonna delay this flight over a pair of keys. Is that is that what you're telling me? And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, Captain. Hold on. And so now another voice comes on. It's now the ramp uh, employee that says, oh, Well, you know, um, well, I think what we're gonna—it's out of my hands. It's you know the MOD wants to do this, and and you know I totally understand. But so she's trying to like bring down the captain a little bit because he's getting upset. And he goes, I can't believe, you know, he looks at me, he goes, I can't believe this. I'm like, well, we're going home. It's our go home link. But the flight attendants, I, I remembered from speaking to them when I introduced myself, they're doing a turn. They're coming right back to, to DFW. If they find it after the flight, they could easily bring back the keys if they were left on board. So he goes, oh, that's, that's a good point. So he tells the operations manager, hey, you know, the flight attendants are coming right back after like an hour or two sit in LA. They can bring them back tonight if they find them. How about that? And they're like, no, it's okay. Uh, we just, we just want her to look. And the captain goes, fine, connect the jet bridge. And he goes, hey, now he's takes his headset off. He's like, just unbelievable. Like this is what we're doing. So he makes a PA to the passenger saying, ladies and gentlemen, someone's left something very important on the aircraft. Uh, we apologize. We just need to reconnect the jet bridge, have them look. And then we'll be on our way, you know. Um, and as soon as he finished that, he then told the MOD, this is what we're going to do. We're not leaving until she comes on and looks in the overhead, because obviously my word isn't good enough for you or her. And a flight attendant's word isn't good enough for you or her. So this is what we're going to do. And they're like, whoa, uh, whoa, whoa, uh, we don't need to do that. Um, and I guess they told her, you're going to go on that airplane and look for him because you're insistent that, you know, you get them. And I can understand, you know, you kind of panic. Yeah. You're like, oh crap, how am I going to get home? And sure. I totally get it. I totally get it. Uh, she didn't like that. So what did she do? <laughs> Turn around, <laughs> go up the jet bridge. She was out of there. She's like, I'm not going to embarrass myself in front of them. So we ended up taking about a 20 minute delay. It's the first time in, in my experience uh, to ever take a delay for something like this. Uh, normally they're very insistent. Nope, that's okay. Uh, if you find them, turn them into lost and found in Los Angeles or something like that. Or, or here's the name and phone number of the, uh, manager. If you find them, call the manager, we'll have it shipped or mailed to the customer, something, you know, but it was such a rarity to take a delay at the gate for something like this yeah. that I just thought I'd mention it. Now I understand going above and beyond. Uh, for a customer, for an employee even. Um, but this was, this was a new one for me. Uh, and I didn't really know how to react or how to feel about it because I, part of me wants to help out the, the cabin cleaner who thought they lost their keys on the aircraft. Uh, but another part of me says, well, hey, we had like five people in the grand scheme of things, looking for these keys to where she believed she left them and they weren't there. So why was that not good enough to say, okay, yeah, they looked and it wasn't there. It's got to be somewhere else. Or maybe I dropped them, you know, somewhere else. Um, so that was really weird. And, uh, but in the end, I have no idea if yeah. they retrieve their keys and, and God, that sucks because replacing a car key, Yeah, we're talking hundreds of dollars and then Unless you have a spare key at home. Oh. Yeah, totally. And it's we, tough we don't even know if any of those keys on there were to jet bridges or things that 
have access to, you know, secure areas in the airport or anything yeah. like that. Well, it was so. a cabin cleaner, so I'm assuming that it was just personal yeah. keys. But Yeah, I'm sure. It's probably. But why would they put the personal keys, set them down and. Right. <laughs> in the airplane. That's what you know I, I mean? said. Yeah, I think it was probably a Jeopardy key because, you know, you need a Jeopardy key to get get up from the uh, ramp and all that stuff. So, yeah. Um, do they have, uh, or just their lead has it, or do the, all employees have it? I don't know. I don't know. I know they travel around in like a little team, and uh, usually they all hop out of a van up the jet bridge, open up the jet bridge door, and then, you know, do their cleaning, and then they all kind of uh, egress at the same time. <laughs> I can't tell you what so. I'm picturing right now. Yeah, exactly. Cleaning. Roger's like... I do Bunch that. Of penguins. I do that myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you have, have to clean up after. You have to clean up after what two, three people at the most. You know, they're cleaning up after 190 oh, people every flight, and they get and an Cheetos entire airplane turned around in 15 minutes. I think they do a phenomenal job. Cheerios so if you're on a, the floor that they're stepping on. Stickers. That's my favorite. When you're traveling with a child and everybody deplanes, and you walk to the back for whatever reason, and you see a thousand stickers. All over the seat back, the seat, the, the side the, wall. And you're like, are you kidding me? Right. Just you let your child do that. I mean, that's fine, but clean up after yourself before yeah. you land. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of interesting oh how God. how like where people get the rationale to do thing do some of the things that they do themselves or that they allow their children to do and then they just get up and walk away. It's like the kind of the lack of accountability that we have as a culture never ceases to amaze me sometimes you know you you actually are saying something that really can be contributed to 90 i think percent of what's wrong with our society exactly including what's currently going on in politics and social uh aspects and everything else yeah well, yeah. you know, so that was that trip. I thought I'd mention that. Um, I hope you got some value out of that story. Uh, the next sequence I did was uh, the 30th of November. I uh, did a Guadalajara, Charleston, and Detroit uh, layover. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail because I don't want to like run over on time today because uh, we have an exciting bit coming up on a tribute to a wonderful aviator that we're going to kind of get into, but... So on the, the 30th, uh, I did a trip and went into Guadalajara, and we had to uh, follow a procedure that Legacy Airlines has with escape routes. Now, these are a little bit different than drift down tables and whatnot. So what's an escape route? So we're traveling to central Mexico, and there's mountainous terrain. We have moras, we've mentioned it before on the show, that are up to 17 eight, 17, five, something like that. So if you have a rapid cabin depressurization, you're supposed to descend to 10,000 feet so that the cabin altitude can be acceptable for human uh, breathing. And so, cause the, the, the O2 for the passengers is very limited. Usually it's about uh, 12 to 15 minutes, something like that. Um, so you have time to, to get down, but you can't get down to 10,000 feet because of some of these grid being so high. Well, if this is the scenario, this is only one scenario that could potentially happen. You can't just slam dunk it. You have to follow a particular path. And the company uh, engineering department has put together these escape routes. So as you're flying along, you have to plug into your FMC or your flight management computer or FMGC 
uh, all these waypoints that you're closest to with an 80 mile ring around it. And as you pass through, you're constantly looking at, okay, if we have a, a bang right now, where am I going to go direct to? And once you're on that particular route, then you can descend further to 10,000 feet uh, cabin altitude, but not until you're on this particular route. So there's an escape route and they'll take you to an airport that's an approved airport, usually around sea level. Uh, so that you can get away from the mountainous terrain and you can get down and land at a suitable emergency airport. So that was fun to do it. I did that yeah. uh, Guadalajara trip twice uh, this month or last month. So uh, a lot of terrain cool. headed down in that direction for sure. Yeah. And uh, when I went into Guadalajara, it was my leg. It was at night. It was on a uh, landing to the east. So as mm-hmm. you're descending on the path for lining up for an ILS and with glide slope uh, indication, you have to make sure that you follow the restrictions of the step down, even if you are like what we were cleared for the visual. So I was looking at that and the terrain is downsloping as you're descending. So you're, you're following the terrain down to the final approach fix. It's relatively yeah. intimidating because it was at yeah. night. And you couldn't see anything. It was just a big black hole. You could see the city yeah. ahead. You could see the, some of the lights of the mountains and the, the houses on the mountains around you. But the path didn't have anything under it. So it was like, well, this is weird. Um, and so that's what it was. Uh, we got a little bit of a slam dunk. But, you know, the controllers, they kind of wait till the last second. They tell you, okay, descend or descend via. Um, so... You got to really be on your toes. Uh, That's right. Thankfully, it was uh, a very nice trip. I did want to mention we did have a little bit of excitement where the captain and I looked at each other. Uh, We had uh, a flight attendant that once we all got off the hotel van at the hotel, you know, the van driver comes around and pulls out all your bags and puts them on the curb. And, you know, once once they're done, everybody gives them a tip, uh, you know, a couple bucks here and there and uh, to thank them for for taking care of the bags and getting us there safely. And the flight attendant, one of them was talking and la, 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 and she looks down and realizes her lunch bag wasn't on the curb. And so she goes, she's talking and all of a sudden she goes, my lunch bag, my lunch bag, my lunch bag, oh, yeah, my lunch bag. Yeah, yeah, you have my lunch bag. Yeah, my, yeah, my lunch bag. She's like Freaking went out. from totally green, having a conversation with her fellow <laughs> flight attendant. To going in the red, red. <laughs> like he, like the van driver just standing there, not having an opportunity to even go what. <laughs> so the van driver turns around, reaches in, finds his lunch bag that he unfortunately neglected to see, yeah. and uh, you know pulled it out, handed it to her, and then oh everything was okay now. <laughs> we all proceeded into the uh, hotel for, Ooh, and I just thank God it wasn't a real emergency, other. right? <laughs> I was like, oh, wow, that that escalated real quick. <laughs> it was jarring. Um, oh, man. I had a hey, similar incident you know, like that. It wasn't really we didn't get into the red, but um, we were uh, overnighting in Miami and we we're coming from the Sherry and we had two crews on the same van going back to the airport. This is back when we were Sandpiper and mm-hmm. uh so I remember getting off the van and the the van driver just kind of putting our bags together for us. 
And what ended up happening was the, he accidentally got our kit bags, which uh, at the time was the, the bag that, you know, carried all of our uh, charts, paper charts, you know, that 30, what is it? 36 pound <laughs> bag that we used to carry around. Right? Yeah. <laughs> 40. <laughs> right. Yeah. It was heavy. Um, well, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of our crew members had the same kit bag. So they were, they looked identical and mine particularly didn't have any, um, any identify, you know, uh, any marks on it that, you know, made it, uh, you know, identified it as mine. It was just very plain looking. And, and in this particular case too, the other one was the same way. So the van driver accidentally, uh, put the wrong kit bag with the wrong overnight bag. So basically when I grabbed my overnight bag, um, I had the other pilot's kit bag. Oh, and so the other pilot, when he grabbed his overnight bag, he had my kit, my kit bag. So, um, so anyways, we, you know, part our separate ways, go through security and I get to the gate and, uh, start pre-flighting my airplane. And I look, go down to open up my kit bag and it's locked. And I'm like, huh. That's funny. I usually don't lock my kit bag. So I try to do the code <laughs> and the kit bag wouldn't open. And I'm like, geez, what is wrong? You know, I'm trying to think if I, you know, if I changed it or if it accidentally got changed and I'm starting to get a little flustered here. And then I realized, hey, this must be the other guy's kit bag. And <laughs> thankfully, I remembered where he was going. So I looked it up on on the uh, computer to figure out what gate he was going out of so i you know i didn't i just lugged the 36 pound kit bag from i think it was terminal d in miami all the way around to terminal e oh man where he was going out of and (laughs) then but luckily he had you know just come to the same realization that he had the wrong kit bag too so he was walking back towards d because all he knew was that i was going out of the d terminal because i didn't follow him into the to the terminal so we kind of met where the little uh they used to have that little art gallery the connector right there yeah. in the and the, the uh uh in the, the change area there and so we kind of laughed at each other we're like wow you know thank god you know we we figured out you know where each other was and and uh we got each other our kit bags and you know that kind of could have gone horribly wrong (laughs) or if one of you took the train you wouldn't have ran into each other you know yeah exactly exactly so uh i think i guess we'd say we went into the yellow on that one (laughs) you went into the yellow. yeah but nobody freaked out nobody freaked out yeah Yeah, no no we didn't get into the red And for those listeners that, uh, you know, are been aviators only for about maybe 10 years or so, uh, there was a time when we each had to carry around something called paper manuals. Well, these paper manuals, uh, it was important to have them in a secure bag. We would carry these rectangular, like a salesman bag. It was a kit bag, the hardcover, really nice leather ones. And, you know, regional pilots usually had the the Kevlar fabric ones. And so that's what we had. And, and, you know, they all look the same because they're all the $99 one that we could yeah, afford. Yeah, they did. Yeah, they also, so, pretty much everybody in training bought their bag at the same place. Uh, not, you know, not everybody did, but you know, yeah. when you show up for ground school first day, everybody starts asking, Hey, what kind of kit bag should I get? Yeah. And inevitably everybody starts buying the same kit bag. So 
the cheapest one. We walk around the airport. <laughs> yeah, the cheapest one, but they all look the same. Yeah. But the important thing too is most people don't realize, uh, which we probably shouldn't talk about too much, but you know that that bag contained the ops manual for the company, <laughs> and inside yeah. the ops manual is some security sensitive information. So if that got into the wrong hands, yeah, um, you know, so obviously they're in this always case it was another. Yeah. yeah, in this case is another pilot, so it wasn't too big of a yeah. deal, but. Yeah. Now it's all on your tablet, which has awesome. a secure code secure that you pass you know, code, obviously. Yep. So, and, and if your tablet gets lost, you call company and they automatically wipe it, wipe it remotely. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So it's pretty cool. Very cool. And Roger, do you still have your kit bag from, from back in the day? I have the bag. It's up in the attic. Probably never <laughs> to see the light of day again, but I do still have it. <laughs> I bet you that nice you could probably put that on, on steel uh, runners on the bottom. Oh, you got the nice one. Yeah. Wow. You could probably put that for sale on uh, on Facebook Marketplace and make. Some I could good probably money get at it. least a quarter for it. Uh, yeah. Well, you'd be surprised. Know, a lot of people uh, like that stuff. I, I was yeah. looking for one just to, for nostalgia reasons, uh, a good leather one, and it's actually still in decent shape. Yeah. And like I said, because even the bottoms in good shape too, because I I did have them put some metal runners on the bottom so it didn't get scuffed yeah. up too. A lot of legacy hair. pilots still like those things. They. Yeah. You know, they'll They're throw their heavy. iPad and a whole bunch of stuff in there, though. Well, they fit stuff, yeah. you know? They fit a lot of stuff. No, in the bus, though, it's like. kind of a pain because when the, when the seat goes back and moves over, uh, the, if the kit bag is too big, or even my bag is a com- soft computer bag um, that I keep everything in, even that, and it's small. It's way smaller than my kit bag. And that, yeah. you know, rubs up against, I can't, get, I can't get it in there unless I move the seat yeah. away from the wall. So I got a Contrail bag, and even that thing... I think it's a three seven zero. It's it's not the large one, but it's the, the next one down. Even yeah. that thing, you know, when I put my seat to the side, it it still crunches it. It rubs. It's not yeah. a lot of room back there. Yeah. But speaking of uh, you know changes in how we operate and kit bag stuff, we just had a new ruling from the FAA in regards to comfort animals, and yeah. from one mile at a time. This is a a quick article is the is this the end of emotional support animals on airplanes they ask from an article written uh, by Ben 72 on December 2nd 2020 the US Department of Transportation has just issued a final ruling that will greatly change how emotional support animals can travel on flights this is major and has the potential to end the concept as we know it an emotional support animal is any animal companion that offers some type of benefit to an individual with some form of disability. Now that is key. This is different than a service animal, which is specifically trained and might assist someone who is maybe blind or deaf, for example. And we, we also see a lot of these specially trained service animals with uh, vets with PTSD. So uh, essential for them in their travel. But a comfort animal is a little different. The ESA concept is, or the emotional support animal concept, is one, is only a, a thing in the U.S. No other country has this, and it's been controversial. I mean, people have brought peacocks, miniature horses, uh, you know, I've seen a boa constrictor as a comfort animal. It's ridiculous, absolutely yep. ridiculous. And yes. the incidences of, of people getting bit by these comfort or ESA animals uh, has gone up. Uh, even here, they, uh, they quoted in there, there have been things from turkeys to pigs to miniature horses on planes. The reality is that getting an ESA certification has been quite easy as there are doctors online who can provide it. 
just Google and you'll see the options. So anybody that wants to travel with Fluffy uh, can just by going online, getting a doctor to say, hey, this is a, an ESA, sure. And then you don't have to pay the extra fees and whatnot, to, you know, and you can bring your animal with you on vacation. And well, most airlines only allow pets up to 20 pounds uh, in the cabin. But many people haven't wanted to put their pets in the cargo hold for good reason, because there are nightmare stories about pets and uh, not making it uh, in a cargo hold for whatever reason. Uh, but the ESA was the way to get around that. And since you can bring larger animals into the cabin of the aircraft, people were bringing in all kinds of weird animals. My favorite story is uh, we had a law enforcement officer who identified themselves and went through all the necessary security protocols, and they had their firearm with them, which they're allowed to do as long as their agency, whoever they work for, gives them the permission to fly with their firearm. And then they present that to the airline, and the airline lets the captain. And the cabin crew know that you're going to have a law enforcement officer on the aircraft. Well, the law enforcement officer came into the cockpit and said, hey, uh, I'm your Leo. Just wanted to introduce myself. And the captain turned and, and saw that this Leo had a, a small dog. And he goes, oh, you're traveling with your with your your pet. Really? And she's like, yeah, it's my 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 comfort animal. Like, wait a minute you you're a you're armed and you have a comfort animal for flying well yeah uh no <laughs> what kind of this psychiatric is, condition are you in i to have a I comfort animal and you have a this. gun <laughs> <laughs> so uh after quite a bit of a debate let's call it uh the captain you know stepped off the aircraft with the person and a, and a, and a few managers at that and said i think we need to call your commanding officer and and, and find out if He's aware that you're got a firearm aboard a aircraft with a comfort animal because of you need comfort to fly. Uh, and she immediately said, nope, and turned around and walked off. <laughs> she trying to get Fluffy to go with her to Nana's house and didn't want to have to pay the fees to bring yep. an animal into the cockpit or into the cabin. And so everyone I know that is in the industry completely supports the elimination Absolutely. of comfort animals do it the classic way just yeah. drink heavily no i'm kidding <laughs> don't drink heavily <laughs> yep. so hire a baby dog sitter or whatever yeah right? drop yeah, it off at the grandma's house comfort animals uh Thank so gosh. let's let's see what most airlines that have already said okay that's it no more and you know i applaud them for the decision Yep. Well, we'll be right back after a brief word from our sponsors. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back from the break. Well, you know, a lot of things have happened here in the last few weeks uh, between what's going on in the news cycle, what's going on in aviation with the downturn from the TSA numbers, uh, you know, the, the president-elect 
had indicated uh, on multiple platforms, now is not the time to travel. Do not travel this holiday. Wait until, you know, the vaccine comes out. And we were seeing record numbers around Thanksgiving, as Roger had mentioned before. Uh, also in the, in the GA world, they were seeing record numbers as well of people traveling, flying, uh, getting around. And we saw the highest number since pre-pandemic flying going through TSA checkpoints. And unfortunately, after the warnings that, hey, if you travel, all you're going to do is kill Nana. And, you know, you're going to spread to this new wave and we're going to have more more people dying from this COVID than, than ever before if we continue down this path. And that really took a toll in the traveling public's confidence. And we went from seeing over a million travelers a day to now just yesterday, the day before, around 500,000. So yes, there's been a huge reduction in the trend of people flying. Well, amongst all of this news, we also had a very tragic loss. On December 7th, 2020, we lost a legend in aviation. We here at the Squawk Ident podcast wanted to tip our hat to the man that we aviators considered to exemplify what it means to be the best of us, the number one top ace, a pioneer to what it means to be soaring above the earth, being the first to break barriers for all of us. How many times has a pilot said, I flew that bird like I was Chuck? Or I'm no Chuck, but, well, today, we here at the Squawk Ident Podcast have decided to pay tribute to the late Brigadier General Charles Elwood Yeager. Born on February 13th, 1923, in Mira, West Virginia, to parents Susie Mae Sizemore and Albert Hal Yeager. Chuck was the son of farmers. He had four siblings, two brothers and two sisters. The family moved to Hamlin, West Virginia, where he attended Hamlin High School. There, he played basketball and football while receiving top grades in geometry and in typing. He attended the Citizens Military Training Camp at Fort Benjamin Harrison in Indianapolis, Indiana, during the summers of 1939 and 1940. He later graduated from Hamlin High School in June of 1941. Soon after graduation from high school, Jaeger did what many young men did in his time. He enlisted as a private in the U.S. Army Air Forces, the USAAF, on September 12, 1941, and became an aircraft mechanic at George Air Force Base in Victorville, California. At the time of his enlistment, Jaeger was not eligible for flight training because of his age and educational background. However, the United States entry into World War II less than three months later prompted the USAAF to alter his recruiting standards. It was discovered that Jaeger had unusually sharp vision, a visual acuity rated at 20 over 10. At the time of his flight training acceptance, he was a crew chief on an AT-11. He later received his pilot wings and a promotion to flight officer at Luke Field in Arizona, where he graduated from class 43C on March 10th of 1943. He was assigned to the 357th Fighter Group in Tonopah, Nevada, where he initially trained as a fighter pilot flying Bell P-39 Aracobas. He was later shipped overseas with the group on November 23rd, 1943. 
Jaeger was stationed in the United Kingdom at RAF Leeston, where he flew P-51 Mustangs in combat with the 363rd Fighter Squadron. He named his P-51 Mustangs Glamorous Glenn after his girlfriend Glennis Faye Dickhouse, who later became his wife in February of 1945. Jaeger had gained one victory before he was shot down over France in his first aircraft, a P-51, on March 5th, 1944. It was on his eighth mission. He escaped to Spain on March 30th with the help of the Maquis, which is the French resistance, and returned to England on May 15th of 1944. During his stay with the Maquis, Jaeger assisted the guerrillas in duties that did not involve direct combat. He helped construct bombs for the group. He was awarded the Bronze Star for helping an, a navigator, Omar M. Pat Patterson Jr., to cross the Pyrenees mountain range. Despite a U.S. military regulation prohibiting evaders or pilots that escaped from behind enemy lines from flying over enemy territory again to prevent resistance groups from being compromised by a second capture, Jaeger was reinstated to flying combat. Jaeger joined with another evader of fellow P-51 pilot First Lieutenant Fred Glover in speaking directly to the Supreme Allied Commander General Dwight D. Eisenhower on June 12, 1944. I raised so much hell that General Eisenhower finally let me go back to my squadron, Jaeger said. He cleared me for combat after D-Day because all the free Frenchmen, Marquis, and people like that had surfaced. Eisenhower, after gaining permission from the War Department, agreed with Jaeger and Glover. In the meantime, Jaeger shot down his second enemy aircraft, a German Junkers Ju-88 bomber, over the English Channel. On October 12, 1944, he became the first pilot in his group to make ace in a day, downing five enemy aircraft in a single mission. Two of these kills were scored without firing a single shot. When he flew into firing position against the Messerschmitts BF-109, the pilot of the aircraft panicked, breaking to the starboard and colliding with his wingman. Jaeger said both pilots bailed out. He finished the war with 11.5 official victories, including one of the first air-to-air -air victories over a jet fighter, a German Messerschmitts ME-262, that he shot down as it was on final approach for landing. It was a P-51D 20 November Alpha that he named Glorious Glen III that gave Jaeger most of his aerial victories. In his 1986 memoirs, Jaeger recalled with disgust that atrocities were committed by both sides and said he went on a mission with orders from the 8th Air Force to strafe anything that moved. During the mission briefing, he whispered to Major Donald H. Bakke, if we were going to do things like this, we sure as hell better make sure we are on the winning side. Jaeger was later quoted as saying, I'm certainly not proud of that particular strafing mission against civilians, but it is there on the record and in my memory. Jaeger was commissioned a second lieutenant while at Leeston and was promoted to captain before the end of his tour. He flew his 61st and final mission on January 15, 1945 and returned to the United States in early February. As an evader, he received his choice of assignments, 
and because his wife was pregnant, chose Wright Field to be near his home in West Virginia. His high number of flight hours and maintenance experience qualified him to become a functional test pilot of repaired aircraft, which brought him under the command of Colonel Albert Boyd, head of the Aeronautical Systems Flight Test Division. Jaeger broke the sound barrier on October 14, 1947 in the X-1. He remained in the Air Force after the war. After graduation from Air Material Command Flight Performance School, Class 46C, he became a test pilot at Morocco Army Airfield, which, he has, which has since been renamed Edwards Air Force Base. After Bell Aircraft Test Pilot Chalmers Slick Goodland demanded $150,000, which is over $1.7 million in today's dollars, to break the sound barrier, the USAAF selected Jaeger to fly the rocket-powered Bell XS-1 in an NACA program to research high-speed flight. Jaeger later named the Bell X-1, which, as with all of the aircraft assigned to him, glamorous Glennis after his wife. His mission was so dangerous that the answer to many of the inherent questions at the time were promptly followed with Jaeger better have paid up his life insurance. Two nights before the scheduled date of the flight, Jaeger broke two ribs when he fell off a horse. He was worried that the injuries would remove him from the mission, and it was reported that he went to a civilian doctor in nearby Rosemond, who taped up his ribs without the Air Force even knowing about it. Besides his wife, who was riding with him, Jaeger told only his friend and fellow project pilot Jack Ridley about the accident. On the day of the flight, Jaeger was in such pain that he could not seal the X-1's hatch by himself. Ridley rigged up a device using the end of a broom handle as an extra lever to allow Jaeger to seal the hatch. Jaeger broke the sound barrier on October 14, 1947, flying the X-1 Glamorous Glennis at Mach 1.05 at an altitude of 45,000 feet over the Rogers Dry Lake bed in the Mojave Desert. The success of the mission was not announced to the public until June of 1948. Jaeger was awarded the McKay Trophy and the Collier Trophy in 1948 for his mock transcending flight and the Harmon International Trophy in 1954. The X-1 he flew that day was later put on permanent display at the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum. Jaeger went on to break many other speed and altitude records. He was also one of the first American pilots to fly a MiG-15 after its pilots, No Kumsok, defected to South Korea. Returning to Morocco during the later half of 1953, Jaeger was involved with the United States Air Force team that was working on the X-1A, an aircraft designed to surpass Mach 2 in level flight. Later that year, he flew a chase aircraft for the civilian pilot Jackie Cochran, as she became the first woman to fly faster than sound. On November 20th, 1953, the U.S. Navy program involving the D-5582 Skyrocket and its pilot, Scott Crossfield, became the first team to reach twice the speed of sound. After they were bested, Ridley and Jaeger decided to beat rival Crossfield's speed record in a series of test flights that they dubbed Operation Naka Weep. 
Not only did they beat Crossfield by setting a new record at Mach 2.44 on December 12th, 1953, but they did it in time to spoil a celebration planned for the 50th anniversary of flight in which Crossfield was to be called the fastest man alive. The new record flight, however, did not entirely go to plan since shortly after reaching Mach 2.44, Jaeger lost control of the X-1A at about 80,000 feet due to inertia coupling a phenomenon largely unknown at the time. With the aircraft simultaneously rolling, pitching, and yawing out of control, Jaeger dropped to 51,000 feet in, in less than a minute before regaining control at around 29,000 feet. He then managed to land without further incident. For this achievement, Jaeger was awarded the Distinguished Service Medal in 1954. Jaeger was foremost a fighter pilot and held several squadron and wing commands. From 1954 to 1957, he commanded the F-86H Sabre-equipped 417th Fighter Bomber Squadron, the 50th Fighter Bomber Wing at Han Air Base in West Germany, and Toul Rishures Air Base in France. And from 1957 to 1960, the F-100D Super Sabre-equipped First Fighter Day Squadron at George Air Force Base in California and Moran Air Base in Spain. By 1962, he was awarded the rank of full colonel after completion of a year's studies and final thesis on the STOL or Stoll aircraft at the Air War College. Yeager became the first commandant of the USAF Aerospace Research Pilot School, which produced astronauts for NASA and the USAF after its redesignation from the U.S. Air Force's Flight Test Pilot School. Fun fact, Jaeger himself had only a high school education, so he was not eligible to become an astronaut like those that he trained. In April 1962, Jaeger flew for the only time with Neil Armstrong. Their job, flying a T-33, was to evaluate Smith Ranch Dry Lake in Nevada for use as an emergency landing site for the X-15. In his autobiography, Jaeger wrote that he knew the lake bed was unsuitable for landings after recent rains, but Armstrong insisted on flying out anyway. As they attempted to a touch and go, the wheels became stuck and they had to wait for rescue. Between December 1963 and January 1964, Jaeger completed five flights in the NASA M2 F1 lifting body. An accident during a December 1963 test flight in one of the school's NF-104s eventually put an end to his record attempts. In 1966, Jaeger took command of the 405th Tactical Fighter Wing at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. His squadrons were deployed on rotational temporary duty in South Vietnam and elsewhere in Southeast Asia. There he flew 127 missions. In February 1968, Jaeger was assigned command of the 4th Tactical Fighter Wing at Seymour Johnson Air Force Base, North Carolina, and led the McDonnell Douglas F-4 Phantom II Wing in South Korea during the Pueblo Crisis. Jaeger was promoted to Brigadier General and was assigned in July 1969 as the Vice Commander of the 17th Air Force. From 1971 to 1973, at the behest of Ambassador Joe Farland, Jaeger was assigned to Pakistan to advise the Pakistan Air Force. 
A small passenger aircraft that was assigned by the Pentagon to Jaeger was damaged during an air raid by the Indian Air Force at a Pakistan airbase during the 1971 war between India and Pakistan. Edward C. Ingram, a U.S. diplomat who had served as political counselor to Ambassador Farland in Islamabad, recalled this incident in the Washington Monthly of October of 1985. He was quoted as saying, after Jaeger's Beechcraft was destroyed during an Indian air raid, he raged to his cowering colleagues that the Indian pilot that had been specifically instructed by Indira Gandhi to blast his plane, it was, he later wrote, the Indian way of giving Uncle Sam the finger. Jaeger was incensed over the incident and demanded U.S. retaliation. On March 1st, 1975, following assignments in Germany and Pakistan, Jaeger retired from the U.S. Air Force at Norton Air Force Base, California. Jaeger made a cameo appearance in the movie The Right Stuff in 1983. He played Fred, a bartender at Pancho's Place, which was most appropriate, as Jaeger said, if all the hours were ever totaled, I reckon I spent more time at her place than in a cockpit over those years. His own role in the movie was played by Sam Shepard. For several years in the 1980s, Jaeger was connected to General Motors, publicizing AC Delco, the company's automotive parts division. In 1986, he was invited to drive the Chevrolet Corvette pace car for the 70th running of the Indianapolis 500, and again in 1988, this time at the wheel of an Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme. In 1986, President Reagan appointed Jaeger to the Rogers Commission that investigated the explosion of the Space Shuttle Challenger. During this time, Jaeger also served as a technical advisor for three Electronic Arts flight simulator video games. The games include Chuck Jaeger's Advanced Flight Trainer, Chuck Jaeger's Advanced Flight Trainer 2.0, and Chuck Jaeger's Air Combat. The game manuals featured quotes and anecdotes from Jaeger, and all were well received by players. Missions featured several of Jaeger's accomplishments and let players attempt to top his records. Chuck Jaeger's Advanced Flight Trainer was Electronic Arts' top-selling game for 1987. In 2009, Jaeger participated in the documentary The Legend of Poncho Barnes and Happy Bottom Riding Club, a profile of his friend Poncho Barnes. The documentary was screened at film festivals, aired on public television in the United States, and won an Emmy Award. On October 14th of 1997, on the 50th anniversary of his historic flight past Mach 1, he flew a new Glamorous Glen III, an F-15D Eagle, past Mach 1. The chase plane for the flight was an F-16 Fighting Falcon piloted by Bob Hoover, a longtime test pilot, fighter, and acrobatic pilot. He had been Jaeger's wingman for the first supersonic flight. At the end of his speech to the crowd in 1997, Jaeger concluded, All that I am, I owe to the Air Force. Later that month, he was a recipient of the Tony Janus Award for his achievements. On October 14th of 2012, on the 65th anniversary of breaking the sound barrier, Jaeger did it again at the age of 89, flying as co-pilot in a McDonnell Douglas F-15 Eagle piloted by Captain Dave Vincent of the Nellis Air Force Base. 
1973, Jaeger was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame, arguably aviation's highest honor. In 1974, Jaeger received the Golden Plate Award of the American Academy of Achievement. In December 1975, the U.S. Congress awarded Jaeger a silver medal equivalent to a non-combat medal of honor for contributing immeasurably to aerospace science by risking his life and piloting the X-1 research airplane faster than the speed of sound on October 14, 1947. President Gerald Ford presented the medal to Jaeger in a ceremony at the White House on December 8, 1976. Jaeger, who never attended college and was often modest about his background, is considered by many, including Flying Magazine, the California Hall of Fame, the State of West Virginia, the National Aviation Hall of Fame, a few U.S. presidents, and the United States Air, Army Air Force to be one of the greatest pilots of all time. Despite his lack of higher education, he was honored in his home state. Marshall University has named its highest academic scholarship the Society of Jaeger Scholars in his honor. Jaeger was also the chairman of Experimental Aircraft Association's Young Eagle program from 1994 to 2004 and was named the program's chairman emeritus. In 1966, Jaeger was inducted into the International Air and Space Hall of Fame. He was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1981. He was inducted into Aerospace Walk of Honor, 1990 inaugural class. Jaeger Airport in Charleston, West Virginia is named in his honor. The Interstate 64 Interstate 77 bridge over the Kanawha River in Charleston is named in his honor. He also flew directly under the Kanawha Bridge and West Virginia named it to the Chuck E. Jaeger Bridge. On October 19th of 2006, the state of West Virginia also honored Jaeger with a marker along Corridor G, part of U.S. Highway 119, in his home Lincoln County, and also renamed part of the highway the Jaeger Highway. Jaeger was an honorary board member of the humanitarian organization Wings of Hope. On August 25, 2009, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and Maria Shriver announced that Jaeger would be one of 13 California Hall of Fame inductees in the California Museum's year-long exhibit. The induction ceremony was on December 1st, 2009 in Sacramento, California. Flying Magazine ranked Jaeger number five on its 2013 list of the 51 heroes of aviation. For many years, he was the highest ranked living person on the list. The Civil Air Patrol, the Volunteer Auxiliary of the U.S. Air Force, awards the Charles E. Chuck Yeager Award to its senior members as part of its aerospace education program. We all know the name Chuck Yeager, but did any of us really understand the man behind the legendary name? To say he was the best of us is not a hard idea to agree with. So many aviators have honored his legacy with phrases like, I'm no Chuck Yeager, but or I made a landing that even Chuck would approve of. On December 7th of this year, 2020, we lost a great aviator and mentor to us all. So raise a glass to Chuck. You will be missed, but never forgotten. And in closing, uh, a customary and traditional um, saying to fighter pilots that have moved on to the um, heavenly side, we use a phrase, toss a nickel on the grass. So here's a little 
quote that um, I took out of an article that basically sums up the quote. So here's a nickel on the grass to you, my friend, and your spirit, enthusiasm, sacrifice, and courage. But most of all, to your friendship. Yours is a dying breed, and when you are gone, the world will be a lesser place. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Chuck. So this was a really cool thing to to do. Uh, I think this is the first time that the three of us have sat down to pay tribute to a fallen aviator. And I got to say, it was a very enlightening research uh, to get done. Uh, I've used primarily the interwebs to find all this information. Uh, Let me just say there'll be a Wikipedia link in the show notes uh, where you can find the information and hyperlinks to every little aspect of this this tribute. Uh, Man, talk about an inspiration. Uh, To fly with broken ribs and and do something like that i mean granted he hit it from the u.s air force which would undoubtedly have (laughs) grounded him uh and put in the replacement but we would not be saying to this day you know the best of us is chuck uh how many times have we heard that i mean so it's an inspiring story yeah it's a testament of to the uh individuals back in that day who were willing to risk their lives for to better you know the cause and um you know, this whole um, age and time, 19, what, the 50s, 1960s, you know, they're trying to, um, you know, advance aviation. And they really, you know, didn't have anything to help them other than their, you know, intuitive minds, their curious minds, and, you know, just the great uh, engineers that they had back in the day to try to figure out how to break the sound barrier and all the challenges that it posed. And, you know, they didn't have, they, I guess I was watching an episode where they were talking about having um, a wind tunnel tests of some of these models to try to break the sound barrier. And he was saying they were able to, to, you know, to replicate or, or actually break the sound barrier of, of the, of the model in the wind tunnel. But he said the problem that they were experiencing was whenever the shock wave would form, the wind tunnels di- the dimensions would distort the actual shock wave. So they never actually had accurate data beyond the actual shock wave. Uh. So they had no way of knowing what was going to really happen in the real flight. And the only way to do it is for somebody like Chuck to volunteer and say, I'll do it. <laughs> and then go up there and, and uh, test it out. And, uh, you know, as we all know, the air, you know, is, is very, very unforgiving. I mean, there's zero room for error and anything, you know, just the smallest miscalculation um, can result in, in, you know, death or destruction of the aircraft. So uh, these guys were very, very brave. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, think of how crazy it was to to go out and and basically volunteer to do something like that. Then also thinking about all the engineers who came up with this stuff because they had no information to go on either. Yeah. And then, you know, in in our case, Jaeger putting his hands in in those engineers, you know. His life in their hands. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. But, yeah. But having no information because aviation was still so young back then and no part of the had, greatest generation. 
It's part of the greatest Any idea generation. What was going to happen? And those guys, you know, trying putting their heads together and saying, "Hey, well, you know, I think this sounds good." And then, you know, Jaeger going, "Okay, well, sure, I, I like what you guys said. Let's go try it because <laughs> you know what can go wrong." Yep. yep. <laughs> what could go wrong? <laughs> Never ask that question when you're a test pilot. <laughs> What's the worst that can happen? Uh, yeah. Nichols in the grass. That's the worst amazing. that can happen. I tell you yep. right now. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, what exactly. is Mach number? You know, we, we learn this in aviation and, and we actually learn this kind of in a private pilot setting, you know, they skim over it and we don't really get back into it until we start working on ATPs because up until that point, if you're flying a piston powered aircraft, your mock is so far from, you know, what you're ever going to need to know. Uh, but we learned that Mach number is the ratio of an object speed in a given medium to the speed of sound that in that medium. So Mach 1 then is the speed of sound around 761 miles per hour at sea level on a standard day. Uh, the term is also used as a metaphor for high speeds more generally. Now we fly aircraft around Mach 0.7 to Mach 0.8 typically, uh, commercial airliners. Right. Uh, Roger actually has the luxury of traveling a little faster and a little higher than most commercial airliners simply because of the equipment that he flies. Roger, what's like the fastest Mach number that you typically will fly at? Um, like typically? Well, typically in the, typically, in the fastest that you've gone. Uh, typically we go eight, three. Uh, fastest I've gone is 0. 0.9. Really? That's subsonic, wow. is it not? Or is that point nine two? That is getting up and getting into the subsonic range. I'm not sure when it actually starts happening. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the Falcon Seven X was rated to nine zero, and so you know it's something that you got to do. So you can yeah, say you did it. That's cool. Yeah. Well, yep. seven two is the typical like generic airliner speed because it gives you the best ratio of fuel burn to ground speed uh on a typical day uh, you know all that everything else considered equal uh we can go up to was it eight one in the airbus uh what is it in the seven three rob yeah i think so uh, you got me there i think it is eight eight two okay well so the seven three. and i'm just looking this up subsonic is actually eight point eight oh and above would be a subsonic or point eight oh and below would be subsonic and above that is getting into the other, what are the other regimes a hyper trans transonic and then yeah and then transitioning in the sonic the yeah. sonic and then hypersonic supersonic. supersonic yeah 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 so i mean we don't talk about it that enough to know what it is yeah it's like <laughs> okay um point point eight oh okay maintain me <laughs> exactly like i say one two three i'll yeah. maintain uh point eight one or better I'm like oh yeah sure yeah. can't i can't do it <laughs> yeah so yeah it, it does get to a point where you're burning more fuel than it's than it's worth you're not saving any fuel there so and that's the name of the game when you're dealing with commercial aviation is is yep. cost per flight uh, but yep. yeah man my hat's off to to chuck yeah so i was just uh pointing out this aircraft that i have on my uh um, green screen behind me. Uh, obviously, if you're watch uh, listening to it on the podcast, you can't see it, but uh, it is a F111. Uh, this particular model is an EF111A model, um, and it was produced by the General Dynamics Aircraft Corporation in here in Fort Worth, Texas. I had the privilege of going for a ride in one of these. I was a crew chief, just like Chuck Yeager, um, 
on this aircraft behind me. Um, this particular aircraft is assigned to Cannon Air Force Base in Clovis, New Mexico, the 27th Fighter Wing. Um, I got a ride in this particular aircraft back in 1997 in Saudi Arabia, and I went 1.3 Mach in that airplane. Wow. So I, I was... I didn't even know it, but and so once you get past, I looked over me and said, "We're going faster than the speed of sound." I looked over him like, "Oh, okay." Did it get quiet, or was it that you didn't even know? Didn't even know it. It, We felt a little, kind of a little shudder from the airplane. I think that was the shock wave. Okay, Um, but there was a lot of shuddering, anyways. You know, it's normal little turbulence, and we were, uh, we were up around, oh gosh, I think we were up around twenty three, twenty four thousand feet when we did it, Um, but. Uh, it, it, you know, as an airplane flies, obviously we all know there's, if it's not perfectly smooth, you feel a little, you know, rhythmic chop or whatever. And it wasn't any different in this plane. You know, we just had a little rhythmic chop. So when we did pass, uh, you know, the actual speed of sound, I don't think I really noticed. I think he mentioned it to me like, Oh, there's a, there's the thump, mm-hmm. which I wasn't a pilot at the time. I'm a crew chief. So I had no clue what the thump was in aviation terms or pilot speak. So, um, uh, but I do remember him saying something. And so now that I, you know, now that I think back, that was probably the little thump that uh, you feel when you pass the sound barrier. And then after that, it was just, you know, flying like normal. That's so cool. But I do remember we were pouring a whole bunch of gas out the tailpipe. <laughs> <laughs> that, that thing has two huge, uh, after burning engines and man i think we were in the area of eighty thousand pounds an hour oh my god we're burning your tax yeah. dollars at work ladies and gentlemen yeah, all man, the rob can go mach 1.3 so i can have fun <laughs> <laughs> put another notch on the belt that's it man <laughs> actually i think that was probably the first notch <laughs> so <laughs> that's so, that's anyway, so sweet I that was man, thank cool. you for sharing that with us that's awesome but if it wasn't for chuck yeager i mean planes like the f-111 behind me uh you know probably wouldn't have been you know designed you know this this particular airplane is a swing wing fighter bomber uh most people don't realize that that airplane was a design that was in competition for the U.S. Navy's um, contract, which we all know that the F-14 actually won that contract. Uh, and the, uh, the Air Force saw the uh, design as a really, uh, really cool platform that they could use for fighter bombers. And uh, they extended the nose, or is it over here, put a little terrain following radar, and that airplane can drop down to about 100 feet flip on the autopilot and a couple other switches and hands off flying. It'll follow the terrain and uh, basically try to evade radar low level at high speeds. I think unclassified, I'd have to look it up, but I think unclassified that airplane can unclassified up to 2.5 Mach. Wow. Actually it says 2.5 plus plus on that thing. Yeah. I don't think it goes that straight and level, (laughs) but I think they can come in from a dive or any kind of a, you know, extreme maneuver and exceed 2.5 Mach and not, not damage the airplane. Wow. It's pretty intense. Yeah. It's a cool design. You know, and, and that really is a, a great example of ingenuity. I mean, that aircraft has been around, the F-111 has been around for a long time. Can you only yeah. imagine? Yeah, it's, it's since retired, but yeah. Can you imagine yeah. the, uh, the data points on things like the F-35 and 
The F-22, oh, I mean, same. we know what yeah. we know, but there's so much <laughs> data that we don't yeah. know. It's classified information, yeah. and, and it's just amazing. Uh, the engineering, yep. the, the every, just everything about fighter aircraft, military aircraft is yeah. just... Just the inquisitive... Oh. You know, nature of of an of that aviation mind to see where we can go from here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, thank you, gentlemen, for helping me uh, share this episode out with uh, our viewers. And I just like to say uh, thank you to our listeners uh, for listening to the Squawk Ident podcast. And we really do hope that you are enjoying the Squawk Ident. Uh, podcast that we put out every week every episode is special to us um, if you do and have uh, found value in our podcast we encourage you to visit our website at aviatortony.com that's alpha victor the number eight romeo tango oscar november yankee.com from there uh, on the homepage, you can find methods to contribute to our show by becoming a producer with either a one-time donation or recurring contributions every little bit helps with the production and marketing expenses of the show you can also leave us some audio feedback and show topic suggestions that you would like us to cover you can also view the many photos that we've shared from the flight line and under the guest book tab where you can view images from our featured guests that we've uh, been able to share with you facebook instagram and youtube users can find us under the squawk ident podcast search we encourage you to support our youtube channel with a like subscribe and a share in closing i'd like to say thank you so much for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there, be safe, and take care of each other. Bye, everyone. Have a good one. Thank you. Take care.